people are forgetting how this all even started. It started with the entire region going up in an uprising of people wanting freedom. Yeah, a lot of the problems that we have now could have been prevented. And and it's a bit dismaying that it's a, les- a lesson that doesn't seem to be like learned yet. <laughs> um, I mean, the whole, the right to protect is completely, I think, a bit ruined now for other countries. So if it's another country where the government is going to be terrorizing their citizens, uh, there is a fat chance that the international community will interfere because of what happened in Libya in 2011, yeah. uh, which is quite sad. I mean, that's what happened in Syria, right? Yeah, yeah. It's already ruined the right to protect. Um, because the right to protect should not be just the right to protect. It should also be the, the right to help to rebuild. And I have had long discussions about the, the, the sorry, not the right to rebuild, the responsibility to rebuild. Um, I've had long discussions with, with people in, in policy about this because they were like, oh, we don't want the whole uh, state building uh, US fiasco thing that happened in, in Iraq or uh, and I'm like well, so the only scenario in Britain where you help people rebuild their government is to actually <laughs> be colonialists like <laughs> so you can't supervise as such a mission <laughs> you, can, you can't support you can't give technical support you can't give um and you know advices planning strategies <laughs> you can only think of yourself as the one who could rebuild uh, but yes that's how they think um, i think some of them when it came to the whole responsibility to rebuild there is uh, a fear of this whole state building uh, um, taboo that is going on in international relations but I'm, i mean i'm, I'm thinking of other uh, states and governments then that who would who would uh, or countries who would rid themselves of, of dictatorships and then don't have the means and the plans and the, and the technical uh, um, capabilities to carry out their own and entire creating their own entire new system. This is A Seat at the Table a podcast series by the Oslo Women's Rights Initiative that discusses global peace and security with a special focus on the situations in Yemen, Libya, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran, and Syria. I'm your host, Mariam Nayib Yazdi. You just heard a clip from a conversation between me and fellow OWRI network member Asma Khalifa, who you'll hear more from throughout this series. Asma Khalifa is a Libyan activist and researcher working on civil society and human rights, women's rights, and youth empowerment. She's also the co-founder of the think tank Tamazigh Women's Movement. In our last episode, Asma explained that a major reason why civil society leaders and groups are sidelined at dialogue tables is because too many decision makers believe only those who can affect change should be at these tables. But the true agents of change are in civil societies, not within dictatorships, militia groups, or individuals and groups who are in the business of normalizing authoritarian rule. Their idea of change is containing dictatorships at the expense of the lives and livelihoods of the people, despite more than a decade of consistent mass popular uprisings across the globe calling for basic human rights, 
freedoms and dignity. You think about removing the government, you don't think about how you can form your own government in the future or how you can supervise it happening without corruption taking roots or without uh, people taking advantage of, of the, the, the destruction and chaos because that's what happens. So it's, uh, it's a very tricky, I think transitions should, should be studied and understood much better by activists and civil society organizations and social movements in, in order to be more successful in the future. Today's episode discusses why peace processes fail with special focus on the international community's role. But the topic is so big that we're splitting it up into two episodes to make sure we cover all the main points while still being conscientious of time. I think it's a very a much an issue of um, design uh, that it's quite now faulty. I mean, it's quite old if you think about it when they have started uh, sorting that like in the 80s and 90s. And it was pretty much to like bring um, groups that are have um, that have been fighting um, to come to terms with an agreement. So the design is not really to very much to bring peace, but to actually bring um, some sort of a ceasefire and a, a split in power, yeah. um, which is you know have been already. Um, has already been proven and not working because more than 80% of these processes fail uh, within the first three years. Um, there's already been a lot of empirical evidence and research going into what would, what would be a process that would bring a more lasting peace. Uh, I, I really generally think that there is a lot to be updated in the whole uh, UN and that just takes a long time. Yeah. Um, but also, I think it's not just the UN who um, who is um, sort of fixated on the on this format. I think also governments want more than not um, a quick fix, yeah. and that and that means uh, they want the troublemakers to come sit on the table, basically. Today's episode will discuss why containment is a failed strategy and why we need to decolonize the peace process now. The next episode will be part two, which will discuss narrative and how authoritarians invest a significant amount of money and resources controlling it in order to get the international community on its side, or at least create so much chaos and confusion, we move away from solutions. Asma and I packed in a lot in our hour-long chat. I wanted to know her thoughts on a topic that I've been exploring, the correlation between the suppression of protests and the suppression of civil society. It basically comes at the root of uh, ignoring needs, right, of, of the population who came out uh, revolting. And that means that, A, your government is not stable, um, B, <laughs> um, people will not stop revolting. 
um, and see you are going to create even more grievances uh, that will eventually explode um, more more likely in a violent scenario than it is in a violent scenario. And of course, uh, suppression comes to you know people on the streets at first, but but it's always uh, it's always followed by civil society uh, organizations, followed by activists, by union workers, by critiques, journalists, uh, writers, anyone who would be able to um, basically speak up because the act of silence is to shut the issue off. Um, but the, sh the issue wouldn't go away, even if you have killed a lot of people. You can't have reform in a, in a violent conflict. No. You can't. Um, and silencing any dissident voices and silencing any critiques and not paying attention to any of that is, is an authoritarian move of being able to contain. But the, the, then the question would be like, to how long are you able to contain? Containment as a strategy is multifaceted. For example, you can implement a strategy to keep dictators whose populations are revolting against them in power by attempting to unite them with each other with the goal of containing the people's protests and protecting the existence and legitimacy of authoritarian systems. Containment is not only the go-to strategy for dictators, but also the international community. However, containing violence has never actually resulted in lasting solutions that benefit the health and well-being of societies. Like, can we talk more about the type of support that civil, uh, civil society and activists need in order to work toward meaningful change? The support also has to acknowledge that these people have their own agency, right? They have their own capacities, they have their own competencies. And so it has to come from a decolonized spot, not that I am more developed and I know better, but that people know differently. And if I am genuine in wanting to support them, then I would ask them what kind of help they need. I think yeah, that's yeah. the first rule is someone coming to you and saying, well, I would like to support you, but how can I do that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like this whole, with, with all the protests happening in the US and the slogan that everyone is saying is listen and learn. I'm listening and learning, but they're not doing that with the MENA region. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Yeah. Because the assumption is that they don't know, right? It's it's a very uh, racist thing. <laughs> we don't know. We uh, so it's not it's not something that we that they could think of. And it's strange that um, it's not. I mean, sometimes it's actually people less in government, more in developmental organizations that do that. That I see this attitude. Uh, where people who have only been a few years working in a, in a country called experts, well, you are never, never, never being get to be called that. We can try to intellectualize violence all we want, but the real agents of change in any country, the real peacekeepers, are those whose actions are led by values and principles rooted in human rights. As a result, 
they are the ones who most represent the best interests of civil society. The lack of willingness of the international community to listen to the people and learn from them and understand the issues on the ground is contributing in a large part to the dehumanization of the people. They're not interested in, in long-lasting uh, solutions, but more in, in short gains that would uh, be beneficial for their policies while they're in government or for their elections. Usually with these with these conflicts, such as Libya and Yemen, you have multiple stakeholders, you have many countries who have interests, either they have been selling weapons, um, or they have been um, uh, uh, supporting one faction uh, versus the other. They would like an ideal scenario where a government this and that would be in, in reinstated instead of the one that might be winning on the ground. So. Yeah. I think divergent interests compounded with short-term uh, sites for politicians who want to do something while they're in office, and then it doesn't matter in 10 years, <laughs> um, is, is, I think, the, the, the most, um, the way that, way that I would see it most realistic. If, for instance, France and, and Italy, who have been fighting inside Libya for years now, have had a more common vision and a, or a more understanding where they could see that it could be a win-win situation for them both we wouldn't have been in with the, the the conflict would have reached where it is now and then you have states that interfere directly like um i mean they they all france has been as well but more like uae and turkey and um, who all have, you know, their interests and actors that they want to support, that they see are more beneficial for their governments. Besides all of these reasons, there's also a bit of a mix of a lot of ego in the uh, in the international system regarding negotiations and things like that. There's a lot of I have to come first, or my position has to be my interest is more important, or. You know what I mean? It's, it's uh, or my government has to come up as the winner, etc. I'm like, you can't win when you're fighting in another country. I mean, you're not, you, you can't. I, um, it's not just about who has more bombs and who has bigger guns. It's also about uh, what process has the biggest social backing because if the process doesn't have social backing, then it will fail. Even if you're, even if the part that you've been baying and giving guns to has won. Mm. If it's not supported by the population, it will fail. Decolonizing peace processes is easy to understand. It simply means giving agency to civil societies rather than what is currently happening which is the intellectualization of the violence that colonized peace processes sustain and create. Appeasing or working with dictators is no shortcut to peace and stability. Peace, security, and stability can only be achieved when the meaningful participation of civil society, namely women, is prioritized in dialogue tables. So why aren't civil society and its leadership prioritized in talks? Narrative has a lot to do with it. If someone controls the narrative,
They control how people talk about an issue. We'll discuss this and much more in the next episode. See you next time. Bye for now.